Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Their race is run. A former Republican says the Iowa caucus is just more proof Donald Trump has a lock on his party's nomination, but our guest says there is still a path to keeping him out of the White House. Distress signal. A Democratic state senator in Texas tells us he's deeply disturbed by the deaths of a woman and two children who tried to cross the Rio Grande on Friday, and by reports that state officials may have prevented an attempt to assist them. To catch a killer, a Canadian press investigation reveals police in B.C. secretly collected DNA during an undercover operation at a community event to solve a murder case. A lawyer with the Civil Liberties Association says she's not worried about the man who was convicted, but the dozens of innocent people whose rights were violated in the process. Oil's well that ends well. Rachel Notley is stepping down as leader of the Alberta NDP after a decade where she governed through an oil recession that racked up billions in debt. Grade Anatomy, a very special copy of a centuries-old anatomy book, goes up for auction and the owner tells us how he discovered it was anything but a textbook case. And enraptured. We reach the man who brought rat hole to the world with a post of the full body impression in a Chicago sidewalk that looks as though it was made by a rat that fell from the sky. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that brings you all the news that's fit to imprint. Donald Trump was in a courtroom again today, one day after his decisive win in the Iowa caucuses. The former president's legal troubles didn't seem to bother his supporters. He took 51 percent of the Iowa vote, way out ahead of his nearest rivals, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. In fact, his 30-point landslide was a record in the state contest. Here's a bit of what he had to say after his win. So we're going to put America first. We're going to make America great again. Again, Iowa, we love you. This is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country. Joe Walsh ran against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020. We reached the former congressman in Washington, D.C. Joe, the comments aren't surprising from Donald Trump. We know what he's going to say by now. It's not a surprise he won last night. And the caucuses we know are different than a general election. But is it a done deal from where you sit? Is it all about November now? It was a done deal last night. It was a done deal a week ago. It was a done deal four months ago. And look, it's been a done deal for the last seven or eight years. Donald Trump owns this political party, and that's not going to change. You are among those who've gone so far as to describe the Republican Party in its current state 
and followers of Donald Trump as a, as a cult. Your word again, and then some others have used it as well. But what would, in your view, realistically change Trump's trajectory then? Well, I don't think anything can change it within the Republican Party. And I have called my former political party a cult. Donald Trump is a cult leader because nothing is based on policy. It's all uh, devotion to Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what he does or what he says. I mean, three years ago, he led a violent attempt to overthrow an American election. And here we are three years later, he's still the leader of the party. So it's set. He can do no wrong. And sadly for Canada and the rest of the world, there's a decent chance he could win in November. And that scares the hell out of me. What is the the purpose then of of the caucuses and the political exercises that will be unfolding until November? You know, last night, Ron DeSantis got 21 percent. We know about 21 percent. Nikki Haley, 19. Could she not gain some momentum in New Hampshire where she's been polling well? She could possibly win New Hampshire, but New Hampshire is an outlier. It's a great state, but it's kind of a funky, weird state where independents and Democrats can vote in the Republican primary. Look, there's nothing that any of these candidates could have done. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, from the very beginning of this process, none of them were trying to beat Donald Trump. None of them were going after Donald Trump, because to do that, end your career as a Republican. Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis have been waiting for something to happen to Trump, a heart attack, a jail cell, something, and then they, they would be the, the last man or last woman standing. But that hasn't happened. What's their end game then if those things don't happen? Well, that was their end game to try to win, right? Like Donald Trump mm-hmm. ends up in a jail cell or Donald Trump has a heart attack, something happens, and then they could be the alternative. That's not going to happen because he's been indicted four times. I mean, he's, he's probably going to be convicted. Yeah, yeah and, and that won't matter. None of that will matter. Even a convicted Donald Trump will still be the nominee. What's the end game? Well, now their end game is, and they know this now privately, they know that Trump's going to be the nominee. So beyond 24, they want to still be viable Republicans beyond 24. So I would expect Ron DeSantis will get out of this race within a couple weeks, Nikki Haley right around the same time, and they will warmly embrace Donald Trump because you have to do that. You have to kiss his ring to stay in the party, and that's what they'll do. But for Republicans who don't follow Donald Trump, how does it sit with them based on your conversations that regardless of the political impact on them, these candidates are not speaking out against very serious issues, that they would continue to follow someone who has proven himself to be at the very least problematic? Oh, my gosh, you are so good and diplomatic. (laughs) I I won't be diplomatic. Donald Trump is a criminal and a traitor. He's a threat to our democracy. So Republicans like me who speak out against Trump, well, you leave the party like I did because you have no future in the party. Or like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, you try to hang around and maybe after 2024, you see if the party can be reformed. All of us never Trump or Republicans It's one or the other. We've either left the party or we still think it can be fixed. I don't think it can be fixed. I think the Republican Party is a shrinking, dying national party. It's a party of middle-aged and older white people who live in the country, in rural America. 
it, it's, it's getting smaller every year because young people and people of color are not entering the Republican Party. So I wouldn't be surprised in America if in the next two to four to six years, there finally is a real viable third party, a center-right party. I think that's eventually what's going to happen. There are young people who support Donald Trump. There are women who support Donald Trump. There are people of color who support Donald Trump, despite all of the things you've outlined and all of the concerns about him as a candidate and as a person uh, and based on his previous record as president. But how can you change those minds there? You know, there are people who still believe the falsehoods they have heard. Yes. And let's never forget Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and he barely lost in 2020. Everything I've told you about Trump, I believe, but again, it scares the you-know-what out of me because Trump has a real good chance of getting reelected. What needs to be done is what we did in 2020, where conservatives like me lock arms with Democrats and progressives, and we have this temporary pact where even though we disagree on issues, we believe in democracy and we know Trump is a threat to democracy. So we all come together again in 24 to try to defeat him. Is that going to happen? Do you get that sense? I mean, you mentioned Liz Cheney. She's been speaking out as well. Uh, and Adam Kinzinger. But do you do you feel everyone's aligned in that way this time or even more so than last I- Yeah, you know, I think we're getting there. Adam Kinzinger is a good friend of mine. We got elected to Congress together from the same state. Adam is now publicly saying that, of course, he'd vote for Biden over Trump. Liz Cheney has been making the same intimations that she would vote for Biden over Trump. I think once it's official that Trump is the nominee, I think you'll see more and more conservatives come out and go there. Joe Walsh, thank you for your time. Good to be with you. Joe Walsh is a former Republican congressman who challenged Donald Trump for the 2020 nomination. He was in Washington, D.C. killer in British Columbia was caught. But questions are now being asked about how the police captured him. In 2017, in Burnaby, a 13-year-old girl was sexually assaulted and killed. And last month, a man named Ibrahim Ali was convicted of her murder. Now, the Canadian press has dug into the court records and found that investigators went undercover at a Kurdish community event to secretly collect people's DNA. The police disguised themselves as tea marketers, offering up free drinks and keeping the cups to collect DNA samples. One of those samples belonged to Mr. Ali's brother and put the police on the trail to his arrest. Megan McDermott is with the BC Civil Liberties Association. We reached her in Vancouver. Megan, the court accepted this evidence. It led to a conviction in a horrific crime. But you're not convinced this was the way to go. You see a lot of problems here. Why? 
Well, because basic rules about judicial oversight were not followed. And it's one of the core checks and balances that we have when there are human rights violations, including uh, privacy intrusion to the uh, extent of collecting DNA from 150 people. And to be clear about how that unfolded, police were disguised as market researchers, as people sometimes see at, at events. They were walking around this community gathering. It was a Nevroz gathering, a New Year gathering in Burnaby. They were handing out tea, and then they kept the cups secretly and extracted DNA from those cups. What should have been done, in your view, by police in advance of this kind of operation? Well, according to our constitution and what we expect from the rule of law here in Canada is that where there are, you know, violations of rights, and and in this case, it's quite a deep violation to collect DNA from people who are not even um, remotely under criminal investigation, that you get judicial oversight. And what people would expect is a warrant, you know, like, a warrant, you can't come into my house, all that kind of stuff um, that we expect police to do in advance. And, it, and it's when there's a conflict of rights. The system that we have is that the courts look at this, they look at, you know, what what the police are alleging, what they think they have, what kind of surveillance they want to do. And then they strike the proper balance between the rights that are at issue and they can add conditions, you know, to ensure that that our rights are minimally impaired when the police do this really important work to protect our public safety. BC's Premier David Eby was reacting to this news and spoke with reporters. We have a clip of a bit of what he had to say. To now, after the trial is complete... After these issues have all been considered, uh, to be going back uh, to say to the police who made our community safe again uh, from this particular predator uh, that they should not have done what they did, uh, I really struggle with that analysis because this young woman's rights were profoundly and unalterably violated, as were the rights of her family and the community to safety. David Eby, for those who don't know, that's the premier of BC, but also the former executive director of your organization. So as someone with that background, he, he's saying that. So what do you say to those who are listening and, and saying the fact that someone was caught, there was a conviction uh, in this case, that that's enough for them? Well, we're not questioning the conviction itself. I mean, we certainly support that somebody that has raped and murdered a 13-year-old girl in our community, um, we are happy that they are held accountable according to our criminal laws. What's at issue here is just how the investigation unfolded. And it's not the rights of the accused that were breached in, in this case. If that had been the case, we probably would have heard about it at trial. Defense counsel probably would have raised the issue. But in this case, because it wasn't the accused that was at that New Year's celebration, it's not even his rights that were violated. And for our premier, who used to be a lawyer at my association, we know that he knows what the laws are and what the procedures are for ensuring that the rule of law is met. And it's really disappointing to hear our premier taking more of a political stance about it. We understand, of course, that the public expects uh, murderers to be held accountable. And we're not arguing with that principle whatsoever. We reached out to both uh, the BC Prosecution Service and the RCMP. Neither would comment on whether police had obtained a warrant to do the, this sting operation. 
If it turns out that they conducted this without a warrant, what implications does that have? Well, you know, it's very worrying. And and personally, I would think that they would have corrected the public record at this point had there been judicial authorization for it. So the reason that it's worrying, you know, if the collection of the DNA of 150 people in this city that I live in, if that wasn't done according to the law, it raises a lot of questions, too, about, well, you know, has it been stored and disposed of in accordance with the law? Because what's supposed to happen if DNA is collected in the course of a criminal investigation and it's not a match with the suspect DNA, then it has to be destroyed, right? But in this case, I'm sure, you know, 150 people, if they're even listening to the news right now, I'm not sure that they even know about what happened. And if they do, I'm sure that they would have a lot of questions. It's just so important for the public to know that all of our state organs and bodies are following the rule of law, because as soon as they depart from that, especially when it comes to DNA collection, uh, it's just really disconcerting. As we mentioned uh, earlier, we know about this story because of a Canadian press uh, investigation. And while we reached out to Kurdish community leaders, we haven't been able to, to speak with anyone directly. They have told the Canadian press that the people who do know about it are quite distressed. So, so do those 150 people have any recourse at this point? Well, I mean, I would uh, hope and expect that these bodies who are responsible for this operation, that they be transparent and accountable to what they did, right? Now, the the unfortunate thing about our system is that if they aren't forthcoming about this, if their DNA is going to continue to be used, or if it's been properly destroyed, it's expensive. It's resource intensive. Um, you know, it would have to take the form of a lawsuit, mm-hmm. possibly maybe a privacy complaint. It's really, really difficult. Just before we let you go, Megan, have you heard of other cases like this, this kind of sting operation where people's DNA was collected in Canada without their knowledge? No, no. That's why uh, it's really stunning. And, you know, it leads one to wonder if it's been used in other contexts as well, right? I can't think of any other situation that comes even remotely close to this. Megan, thank you. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Megan McDermott is the policy director for the BC Civil Liberties Association. She was in Vancouver. When Rachel Notley took the helm of the Alberta NDP nearly a decade ago, there were so few elected members that they could hold meetings in a car. The Alberta NDP is now the official opposition party in the province. And that's one of the things that Ms. Notley said she was most proud of today as she announced her resignation as leader. Ms. Notley led the party to victory in the 2015 election. As premier, she faced criticism from both the left and right and eventually lost the 2019 and 2023 elections to the United Conservative Party. But today, Ms. Notley focused on what she accomplished and what her father, former Alberta NDP leader Grant Notley, would think of it all. This October... 
will be 10 years since I was first given the honor of leading our party. At the time, we were the fourth party in the legislature with a massive caucus consisting of four MLAs. Less than seven months later, we had a caucus of 54 MLAs and Alberta's first NDP government. While many of those folks, and indeed myself included, never expected uh, to, uh, to be uh, elected, let alone finding themselves in a government cabinet, we all scrambled quickly to live up to the immense privilege and responsibility the people of Alberta bestowed upon us. Now, we didn't get everything right, but we governed with integrity, an ambitious agenda, and an earnest desire to make life better for Albertans. But if there is any one accomplishment that I can leave behind me, it's that we are not a one-party province where Albertans have no real choice about how their province is to be run. Now, roughly 10 years ago today, I started talking to my kids about how they'd feel if I decided to run for the leadership of Alberta's NDP. Roughly 15 years ago today, 12 years today, 10 years ago today, I listened to my husband tell me that he thought I should run for the leadership of Alberta's NDP. In both cases, my family got quite a bit more than they'd bargained for. It's been a crazy ride, but I couldn't have done it without them. I was raised by both my, my father and my mother to believe that public service is, is it's something that you should strive for throughout your life. I wish they could have been here to see some of what we've all been able to accomplish together. Either way, it wouldn't have happened for me, without the examples that they both set, demonstrating daily the value of hard work, compassion for neighbours, the duty of compassion for neighbours, and the importance of social democratic convictions. That was Rachel Notley announcing that she is stepping down as the leader of the Alberta NDP. Museums, jazz bars, Millennium Park, Wrigley Field, many things bring people to Chicago. But recently, one attraction has taken center stage. The Chicago Rat Hole has been there for decades. Lately, though, it is drawing bigger crowds than ever before. That's thanks to an image that Winslow Dumaine recently posted in a tweet. We reached Mr. Dumaine in Chicago. Winslow, describe the Chicago rat hole for our listeners. So uh, in Roscoe Village, uh, which is a little neighborhood in Chicago, on the sidewalk, there is a uh, splat mark as if something had fallen into wet cement. 
that is the exact shape of uh, a rat or a squirrel, perhaps, um, that is pretty deep in the cement and pretty convincingly uh, rodent-shaped. Yeah, I, I'm leaning towards Team Squirrel um, on this yeah. one. Maybe it's just psychologically it's it's easier, but it, it's almost like a cartoon moment. Yeah, it's very wily coyote, you know, <laughs> running straight through a, a wall, leaving the imprint of himself. Yeah. You live in Chicago, but you just saw this this rat hole up close for the first last time. Yeah, week for the first. So what what drew you to it? Uh, so I'm I'm a local artist and stand up comedian, and so I sell a lot of my artwork artwork in stores uh, throughout the city. And I was in Roscoe Village to visit a shop called Transistor. And I was with my friend uh, Haley Hudson, and she was uh, guiding me uh, through the neighborhood and told me to keep an eye out for the rat hole. And I'd never seen it before. And when I saw it, I just immediately just I burst out laughing because it's it's so immediately funny. Um, and I took a picture and I put it on on Twitter, and it's just uh, it, it's been been a a wild success uh, and and kind of cultural phenomenon ever since. You know, you posted it hoping people would notice, but did you think it would get that much attention? Okay, I, this is the funny thing. I have a podcast called I'm From the Internet. Like, <laughs> my whole thing is about internet culture and, like, posting and how people behave online. I yeah. think that's so fascinating, right? And so I kind of did feel that this would work. Uh, I didn't think that it would be anything like this. I thought it would just, you know, get a few hundred likes or whatever. Um, but five million uh, views is just, uh, it, it's insane. And it's not that people just shared and, and liked that image. Right. It's been drawing people to the site. I mean, Chicago is such a great city. So many things, so many attractions to see. Are, are you feeling comfortable that this is now on the list of attractions in Chicago? Yeah, I... Uh, I've seen people like putting it as like a local landmark on Google Maps and stuff like that. I think that's pretty cool. That's that's the other part of this uh, story that uh, we haven't really touched on yet is that the tweet that I wrote said uh, uh, had to make a pilgrimage to the Chicago rat hole, and uh, I I think that it was just the fact that I used the word pilgrimage that led so many people to uh, visit it, and so. I just put up a picture of it, and, you know, it was just there full of, you know, rainwater uh, when I found it. And uh, other users across the Internet and, indeed, across America have, like, driven there to, like, visit it and, like, leave tokens behind. So uh, I've seen lots of pictures with incense and candles and uh, lighters and uh, lots and lots of change and there's even like a little tombstone that they've left for it of course, yeah. and well we don't know uh, what happened to this squirrel we don't know what happened. we'll never know yeah. we'll never yeah. know the enduring mystery that's part of it i'm sure but what do you think it is in terms of seeing it up yeah. close why do you think it speaks to so many people i think it's it is uh it's one of those very rare um moments of what is like environmental storytelling um where if you were to show this to someone who doesn't speak any English at all or someone 500 years ago, they would look at that and go, I know what happened. They know exactly what happened, right? Because uh, concrete has been around for, you know, however many, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. And uh, and man has lived among animals for, for even longer. And so when you see something like this, it's like it's the exact 
It's like seeing, you know, a bunch of broken plates on the ground right next to a banana peel. And you're like, I know exactly <laughs> what happened here, you know. And so it, it speaks to everyone across the board. It's not political. It's not profane. Well, I wonder also, it kind of speaks to Chicago's history and tradition of comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in that, in, uh, in the way you've described it as well. Yeah, I think that uh, Chicago, like, Chicago knows exactly what it is. We we put on very few affectations. Um, we are, are, we pride ourselves in how hard we work and uh, the things that we are willing to endure. Like, one of the most popular liquors in Chicago is Malort, and Malort's entire advertising campaign is that they taste terrible, right? But Chicago knows that it's full of rats. We drink, like, you know, objectively detestable liquor. Um, <laughs> we know exactly what we are. And so when, like, this indelible evidence of rodent activity is printed into the cement, it's just like, yeah, you. anybody else, would this would happen and it would be, like, a piece of shame. We would be making fun of them. But Chicago's like, yeah, no, this is us. Do with it what you will. You know? Winslow, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Winslow Dumain is an artist in Chicago. We reached him there. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's been four days since the bodies of a woman and two children were recovered from the Rio Grande by authorities in Mexico. They drowned trying to cross the dangerous river into Texas, and their deaths have intensified an already fierce battle between state officials in Texas and Joe Biden's White House. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security claimed its Border Patrol agents were physically barred from entering the area where the drownings happened, despite reports of migrants in distress there. But the Texas Military Department says by the time federal agents requested access to the site, the drownings had already happened. It's a dispute that's already led to a Supreme Court filing by the Biden administration and one that prompted our next guest to describe Texas Governor Greg Abbott's migration policies as, quote, inhumane and unconstitutional, unquote. Jose Menendez is a Democratic state senator in Texas. We reached him in San Antonio. Senator Menendez, we're talking about three people here. A woman, Victorma de la Sanchez-Ceros, 33 years old, Yorle Rubí, 10 years old, and an 8-year-old, Jonathan Augustin Briones de la Sancha. Do you know, have you been able to learn anything more about them? The facts that I am aware of are unbelievably um disconcerting and and really sickening, to be quite honest. I mean, to, to think that when federal 
authorities were trying to help this woman and her two children uh, who are, were in distress, that they would be stopped, that they wouldn't be allowed to help to rescue them. Um, to me, that sounds as if, I mean, to me, I, I, I would assume that the law is on the books and, and not being a lawyer, but I mean, just knowing enough facts, that sounds like a, a, you should, whoever gave the orders not to allow them is complicit in their deaths. As you know, the state says U.S. Border Patrol, the version of events that you've just listed as well, in their view is, quote, wholly inaccurate, unquote. The Texas military department says these drownings had already happened before federal agents requested access to the park. And the department also says its agents searched the Rio Grande with lights and night vision goggles and did not see anyone trying to cross. That's their explanation for what happened or their description of what happened. What's your response to that? You know, in a situation like this, one would only hope that anybody who's entrusted with keeping the law, with keeping the peace, that anybody who has uh, sworn a duty to uphold the Constitution and the laws of this uh, nation and this country, that they would uh, that they would be honest and that they would uh, be 100 percent. It is sad that I feel I feel a sense of. Um, uncertainty of about this this account the fact that there seems to be conflicting reports and i would like to know the truth uh at the end of the day the truth will come out and whoever if if the version is that that the people were kept from helping people who were still alive then those who did that or who gave those orders should be held must be held accountable on Friday, prior to, to these deaths, Governor Abbott uh, said in an interview, quote, the only thing we are not doing is we're not shooting people who come across the border because the Biden administration would charge us with murder, unquote. He's saying this in the context of this, the broader fight that is happening between him and, and Texas and U.S. President Joe Biden on the issue of migration. What is your message to people in Texas who agree with the governor and are rooting for him to win that broader fight? They need to be careful. They, they need to really rethink. It, it is mind-boggling that a governor who calls himself a pro-life politician be talking about the fact that he would somehow either, his statement sounds as if he would either order or would condone the shooting, the murdering, of human beings for crossing a border, that that is mind-boggling for for someone who wraps himself in his uh, religion and his faith, as he calls himself a, a, a pro-life. That is uh, beyond the pale of, of of it doesn't make any sense. And so many of his followers do the same. At the end of the day, as so many of these people like to claim that we're all children of God. They need to check themselves. They need to really check their values and ask themselves if that's okay, because it's not. It's murder, no matter which way you cut it. And, and if anybody could have saved those poor, that poor woman and, their, and her children and they turned a blind eye, they are complicit in murder. They, they are at the minimum complicit in manslaughter by not helping. There have been so many cases 
so many concerns, so much debate, so much discussion. What in the end is actually going to bring about meaningful change? Because it doesn't appear that Governor Abbott is going to change his mind, uh, yet people are still coming. I think that as a nation, we have done so much to help so many across the globe. And sometimes I think we have been, many times we've been irresponsible in the governments we've helped prop up. And in the reckless way, we've just shipped financial resources or weapons of war to different places. I think as a nation, if we really want to address this issue, we should be going to these countries where the people are coming from and asking, what can we actually do to help stabilize your nation, to help provide good-paying jobs, to help provide a, 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 a system by which you can feel safe, where you wouldn't put your life at risk to try to cross the border to come to the United States. The the issue in so many of these countries is that people feel unsafe, that, that the gangs have taken over, uh, that the cartels have taken over, that uh, women sometimes feel that, it, that the risk of traveling thousands of miles and crossing a border are lower than the risk of staying in their countries for their children, for their safety, that their, their boys are going to be uh, inscribed in these gangs or killed, that their young women are going to be put into sexual trafficking. And, and so we have got to do more as a nation um, to reach out. This woman and the children, uh, they are believed to have been traveling with three other migrants. Do you know anything about what has happened to them? I don't. I don't represent the border, mm-hmm. but but I'm close enough to with many of my colleagues that I care a great deal about it. My heart breaks for these poor folks, and uh, and I can only imagine that, that the, those mothers and fathers are trying to do what they think is best for their children. Senator Menendez, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for your interest. Jose Menendez is a Democratic state senator in Texas. We reached him in San Antonio. you hold a very old book, an original copy of a Renaissance-era anatomy text. There are woodcut illustrations, and scrawled in the margins are notes in Latin. Now, imagine the hand behind those words belonged to the author himself, written 480 years ago. They are the work of the great Andreas Vesalius, who revolutionized the field of medicine with the ideas he laid out in this very book. That's what book collector and retired doctor Jerry Vogrinsik discovered he had on his hands after buying the book in 2007. Now, He's ready to let it go. It goes up for auction tomorrow at Christie's, where it's expected to fetch well over $1.5 million. We reached Jerry Vogrinsik in Vancouver. Doctor, what made you decide to put this up for auction? 
Well, it was a very difficult uh, decision to make. I'm a, I'm a collector of books, not a seller of books. But, you know, I, I think I realized that this book was just too important and, and too valuable to be in my possession. It's just, it's just um, it, at some point, it's such an important item that, that, you know, to have it in my possession at home would almost give me more worries than it would uh, pleasure in some <laughs> ways. So, you know, if this book does sell, it certainly would allow me to get some funds to continue my book collecting. So, so that was one reason, yeah. I think. It's going to be hard to top this one, though, right? <laughs> it's good. And it, yeah, it's, it's, but it's always a process of discovery. So that it's a thrill of the hunt in a sense. Yeah. And I want to talk uh, about the so, process of discovering this sure. in just a moment. But, you know, most of us will never get to, to hold this book. And whether you're a medical professional or not, I think it would be, you know, if you, if you love books and old books in particular, just to hold it in your hands and flip its pages would be remarkable, to say the least. Right. What is it like just to put us in your shoes for a moment in, and the book in, in your hands so we can we can get a sense of what it's like to flip through it? It's very difficult. It's, it's, it's such a unique item. And um, it was such an important book as well. I mean, it was a, it was a the book itself, apart from this earliest writing, it was such a monumental book in history of science and medicine. You know, this book, it changed the way people thought about about medicine. I, prior to this book, uh, you know, people relied on authority. The authority of the Greeks, Galen and, and Hippocrates, were were to be unquestioned. Their 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 what they said was correct, no matter what. And Vesalius, with this book, really changed that whole mindset. He he said in this book, you have to find out for yourself what the truth is. You have to do the work and and, and don't just believe authority. Find out for yourself what the truth is. So, so it was a monumental book in that sense, and and yeah, that's a powerful thing to have in your possession. Absolutely. So initially, you buy this because, as you've said, you you love to collect old rare books, but then you start noticing the annotations, and it seems like the author made right. those annotations. So, you do your own research. You know, at what point do you find out that this was his? And he was he was making those changes. You know what I noticed was that this book was was heavily annotated throughout, and it was there was extensive crossing out of of large numbers of sentences and paragraphs, and they were being rewritten in the margin. And what was being rewritten in the margin was being crossed out and rewritten again. So, so this person was thinking about how to rewrite this book, and also um, things. You know, this is a very heavily illustrated book, and. Uh, corrections were being made to the illustrations. Things like lines were being drawn in and, and some lines were being crossed out. And I thought, nobody would notice. Who would notice these things? A typical reader does not notice okay. things like this. A typical reader does not rewrite the book. They might underline and make notes, but they don't rewrite the text to this degree. So I thought, oh, you know, again, over a process over a couple of years, I thought, oh, you know, could this be the author who's rewriting his text? And and so, I, you know, I, I couldn't read the Latin, but one thing I could do was compare handwriting. And um, I, I, uh, Vesalius's handwriting is very rare. There's fewer than 10 letters known to be written by him. But I was able to find uh, Uppsala University in Sweden had two of his letters, and they, they were generous to send me copies of both letters. They were probably about you know twelve hundred or fifteen hundred words to compare with, and that if there was sort of an aha moment, that that was it. When mm-hmm. when I started to compare the handwriting, I found easily over a hundred words and letters that were identical between the two. So mm-hmm. so I had a, I was pretty comfortable at that time. It was yeah. his his writing. So so at that point, once I realized that this could be Vesalius, I actually got some scholars involved yeah. and, and they, they, they actually translated all of the translations over a couple of year period, a two year period, and confirmed that it was Vesalius at that point. Do you have a favorite page or illustration? You know, there's so many. There's so many. I, I think my, my I mean, watch, uh, seeing him um, 
making notes on the illustrations is dramatic because those illustrations are remarkable. They were remarkable at their time and they're still remarkable today. That That's pretty dramatic. And just some pages that are just completely crossed out and rewritten, mm-hmm. that, that's also a very dramatic thing to see. Yeah. And the thing, when you think about the, the value and, and the historic value, but also the money, <laughs> the, the monetary right. value right. of what it might fetch now, you bought this in Germany and it was shipped to you just through the post. Well, you know, the invoice was in German, and so I couldn't understand the invoice. So I, I thought I was reading it correctly, and when it came to the part of how would you like the book sent to you, I did check off, send it by regular. I, I, I thought I was checking off, send it by courier, right. but I did check off, accidentally send, send by regular mail, which is what they did, surprisingly for such a even, – even not knowing it was miscellaneous, the book itself is quite a valuable one. A valuable yeah. book, but it took you know probably I think about five weeks as I recall to get the book, and I was quite concerned it wasn't going to show up. But <laughs> good, thank goodness it did. Yes, absolutely. Where do you hope it ends up? I, you know, my, w- one reason I, I did um, have it on loan at the Fish Library is because I wanted people to be able to see it. You know, not only scholars, but also you know I, I understand medical students were very very thrilled to see it, and, and just the public in general. So my hope is is that it, it either ends up at another institution or a library, or if a private collector does buy it, that they do put it on loan somewhere it can be viewed by others. I think that that would be very nice. Doctor, thank you. You're welcome. Jerry Vogrinsik is a book collector and retired physician. We reached him in Vancouver. There were sounds of celebration on Sunday as Ilahe Mohammadi and Nilafar Hamidi walked out of Tehran's Evin prison and were embraced by supporters and loved ones. The two Iranian journalists were released on bail as their case is appealed. They were jailed in 2022 after helping uncover the story of Mahsa Amini, the 22-year-old who died in the custody of Iran's morality police. But Ms. Mohammadi and Ms. Hamidi's celebrations were short-lived. According to Mizan, a state-controlled news agency, prosecutors have filed a new complaint against the two women after photos and videos like the one you just heard showed them unveiled in public. Jasmine Ramsey is deputy director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. It's an independent U.S.-based advocacy group. We reached Ms. Ramsey in Washington, D.C. Jasmine, clearly we can hear the joy in that moment and the emotion as Elahe Mohammadi and Nulufar Hamedi were, were released on Sunday. What did you think as you watched that video? It was bittersweet because we've been tracking these cases for more than a decade, and we know that their release was temporary pending appeal. Um, so they were celebrating because they had been behind bars for months, um, most of the time in solitary confinement. Um, but even they knew that they still have years of imprisonment hanging over their heads. And yesterday, Monday, prosecutors did level new charges. Just tell us about those charges and what they will mean in reality for these two journalists. Yeah, I mean, it's completely arbitrary. First of all, it was state media that reported that someone in the judiciary was going to charge them again. They didn't specify any charges. 
um, they basically just said that these women are going to be punished for appearing in photos during that time, you know, embracing their family members with their hair uncovered. Do you think that that was an intentional move on their part? Yes, they're actually not the first women prisoners of conscience to be immediately slapped with new charges. Sepide Golian, a young rights activist, immediately after she was released on bail and also had her hair showing, was also slapped with charges and immediately taken back to prison. And now these journalists, just today, the judiciary is claiming that they're going to be taken back to prison next week. And it's clearly a, a move of retaliation by the state against these women for simply being women. Do you think that, that Elahe and Nilufar were trying to make a statement in that moment? I can't speak for them, but I think it's really important to note that what they actually did, they were outside embracing. And the perception that we may have of just women embracing release from prison is obviously very different than the message Mm -hmm. that the government wants to impose here. They're saying you don't have the right to smile and cheer with your hair uncovered in public. We will punish you. We will silence you. We will force you to submit. And so, yes, they're they're trying to make an example of them, as they have of so many political prisoners in Iran. We've covered many of, the, of those stories, and our listeners will be familiar as well with Nargis Mohammadi, who has also just been sentenced to another 15 months in prison. What do you believe the, the broader message is here that, that Iran is trying to send with that new sentence, but also with the release and then the new charges for these two journalists? I've always said that the prison doors in Iran when it comes to prisoners of conscience are revolving. These are revolving doors. Whether it's the same person or one person goes in and another person goes out, there's never empty spaces. These prisons are overpopulated, not just with regular prisoners, but political prisoners. And all prisoners in Iran are denied due process. They are convicted in sham trials sometimes within an hour. Nargis Mohammadi, the Nobel laureate, was convicted in one day. She wasn't even present because she knew that there was no chance of her being able to present a defense because the charges are completely politically motivated. And they are specifically because from prison, she uh, wrote statements in support of the peaceful woman life freedom movement, which erupted around the country last year. Mm-hmm. That is why she has now been slapped with additional years of prison time. So the, the, the message is clear. Women should never raise their voices against the state. And yet the real story here is that women continue mm-hmm. to do this. And when we talk about the Women Life Freedom Movement, Ms. Mohammadi and Ms. Hamadi were a big part in, in sparking that because of their coverage of Mahsa Amini. Just tell our listeners about the kind of work they were doing. Right. I, I want to emphasize that these were journalists that were working for newspapers that exist inside Iran, and they really just performed basic journalistic duties. One of them went to the hospital where Masa Amini died just three days after she was arrested by Iranian state forces for her hijab. She took a picture of Gina's, her name is really Gina, her parents embracing. And the other one traveled to Amini's hometown to try to cover the funeral, and that's where she was arrested. So they were performing basic journalistic duties. And it just gives you a sense that there's no tolerance 
for anything to come out that could possibly implicate the state, and especially when it's against women. When women do it, they face often the harshest punishments, as we're seeing. What will happen next to them, Elahe and Nilufar? Uh, the journalists are at home with their families, but um, the news agency is claiming that they are going to be taken back to prison within a week. And this was clearly reprisal. So they're saying we're not just going to um, slap you with new charges while you're waiting an appeal review on the initial charges. Remember, they've each been sentenced to um, 13 and 12 years in prison. They have to serve seven or six if the appeal upholds that sentence. But they're saying that we're also not going to let you be home on bail as they are legally entitled to because they posted the bail amount. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you're moved and inspired by what women in Iran continue to do. What is it like for you to do the work you're doing and watch that from afar? I mean, it's unfair. And honestly, you know, you ask that and I I feel like I want to cry because it's Mm -hmm. unfair that they have to go through this while I can talk to you freely and not worry that people are going to come in my house raid my home, take my computer, and throw me inside a prison. Um, I want to bring attention to a campaign that's currently out. It's called End Gender Apartheid. This campaign was launched by major women's rights activists from countries including Iran and Afghanistan to officially recognize Iran as a gender apartheid state. It's very important also to emphasize that the U.N. has said that a new legislation that the Iranian government is expected to soon pass, um, it's called a hijab and chastity bill, which imposes further punishments on women for appearing in public without hijab, could amount to gender apartheid. And not standing up for these women just because they're Iran allows this kind of thinking and treatment of women to flourish in other places. So it's important to share their stories and keep the spotlight on them. Jasmine, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jasmine Ramsey is deputy director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. We reached her in Washington, D.C. According to Canada's official greenhouse gas inventory, energy, transportation, and agriculture are the country's biggest emitters. Forestry, meanwhile, is billed as a carbon sink, meaning it is responsible for capturing more carbon than it produces. Except a number of researchers who study the sector say it's not. Not by a long shot. Jay Malcolm is a professor emeritus in the Department of Forestry at the University of Toronto and one of the co-authors of a new study published in the academic journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Change. We reached him in Toronto. Jay, how would you describe the gap, the size of the gap between what the federal government is reporting in terms of forestry-related emissions and what you and your team have calculated? Um, Well... Unfortunately, it's a bit of a shell game. Um, Over the 16 years of study, the average gap was more than 90 megatons of carbon. 
um, which is an enormous amount of carbon. I mean, we're looking at an amount here that's larger than many of the big emitting sectors in Canada. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge number. For our listeners, if you could just break it down, how do you account for for a gap that large? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to something really very simple. Um, you know, the the federal government is allowed to report on emissions due to natural causes. In this case, we're mainly talking about fire, natural fire, and then also sources that are anthropogenic or human caused. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is they've taken a big chunk out of the natural side of the ledger and moved it over to the human side of the ledger. And as a result, made forestry look very good because it turned out to be basically not an emitter. And we're talking about they exclude emissions from forest fires. But once the forest gets old enough, around 76 years on average, those forests are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. They move them over to the human side of the equation. So it gives this mistaken impression that, you know, forestry is good to go. So how do you account for that creative accounting? Um, It's certain. I mean, there is a certain logic to it those forests are now open to commercial operations so they could be harvested. Um, But, you know, it's out of whack in that, you know, all of a sudden we said something that was quote natural is not in our accounting, but now all of a sudden we're putting it back in on the human side. Um, You know, fundamentally it comes down that, you know, many people in forestry and industry have a hard time imagining that anything we do in our forests is not good for the climate. Because fundamentally, trees, when they grow, they suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So they, they're hard-pressed not to come up with a positive number somehow. In response to your research, a spokesperson for Environment Canada told CBC News its calculations are, quote, based on international agreement among the scientific community using the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's own methodologies, unquote. Do you dispute that? Um, I don't dispute that. Um They're doing disaggregation, which they're allowed to do, but it ends up being a biased disaggregation. So hopefully this is something that the IPCC will, you know, get wind of and go like, oh, guys, you can't disaggregate in that way. Because, you know, if you look at like I was just looking at tables of emissions from major sectors, you know, for example, uh, agriculture, 69, buildings, 87, electricity, 52, oil sands, 85. And you look down the table further and you find forest resources and it's two. And you go like, well, actually, it's not two in that particular year. That was 2021. It was 73. So it gives this mistaken impression that we can't look to forestry for climate, you know, nature based climate solution or any kind of climate solution. How much faith then, based on what you've seen, how much faith should Canadians be putting in the government's reported progress in terms of meeting its own climate change targets, just based on what you've seen in this in this part of their reporting? Well, I mean, forestry has gotten left out of the equation entirely. So, you know, I you know, I have faith in government reporting. The question becomes really of sort of providing a balanced ledger, so to speak. It's not as though people are making up numbers or leaving out important numbers. Um, it's just that there's a big bias built into the way they're doing it. And then that determines policy and and what happens going forward. Yeah, policy or lack thereof. 
I mean, you know, this is a big number. And we have at our disposal methods to reduce that number and make our forest resources be an actual help in our fight against climate change and helping our numbers. And there's, you know, there's lots of methods at our disposal to actually change the way we do forest management so that it is more carbon friendly. Well, you know, there is that impression now based on numbers like these you've been talking about that it is a carbon neutral resource. What would need to be done? What would have to change for it actually to be carbon neutral? The main issue is that we run down the amount of carbon stored in the forest. So we do a high, a large amount of clear cutting and we, the forest becomes younger as a result, which reduces the amount of carbon it's storing. And a great deal of that carbon, when we run it down like that, ends up in the atmosphere. So instead of just relying on clear cutting, which we do enormously in Canada, we can do more partial harvesting, um, like we do, for example, in Maple Stands in Algonquin Park. We can have the rotation period be longer until we revisit a stand to recut it. And we can do more set-asides, more conservation areas. So, you know, there's some really elegant work looking at sort of optimization to say, okay, let's worry about carbon in addition to timber and money out of our forest. And how can we sort of meet both those objectives? And there's some really great stuff out there. Jay, thank you. My pleasure. It's fun talking to you. Jay Malcolm is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto. That's where we reached him. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 following The World at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kuxel. And I'm Talia Schlanger. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.